1. Paul, Silvius, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought eyes to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and of those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in a saint and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, feed us. Feed us this third day of Advent with spiritual food from your word that would propel us towards joy. Joy that's already in us because Jesus, the joy giver, reigns within us. Lord God, fill our ballast tanks full of that joy that sees us through no matter what, that health concern, that relationship issue, the state of affairs of the political world in Canada. And cause joy to come up within us no matter what. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Typically the third Sunday of Advent that we're celebrating today, the theme for it is joy. I say typically because in non-liturgical settings, most evangelical churches we wouldn't consider liturgical, the common themes of Advent being hope, peace, joy, and love are often mixed up and interchanged like we have done this year as I worked through the Bible in 2019. But nevertheless, if you notice, despite how things are changed or switched up, one of the Sundays, if not the third Sunday, one of the themes is always joy. Because I do believe we are a people who want to be joyful. And not just Christians, but in the world in general, we are seeking joy. The joy theme is reflected in the candles. We have three purple candles and one pink candle, and the pink candle is usually the Sunday or lit on the Sunday of joy. 
other three are purple, which is a good color because of who we celebrate this season, who we prepare for this season, whose birth we mark this season, Jesus Christ, because purple is a royal color. He is king of kings and lord of lords. But also purple is a somewhat somber color as well, isn't it? Reflecting also the bitter sweetness of this time of year because we know that this babe that we celebrate was also sacrificial lamb that was destined to die on a cross for our sins. That's why I think they, one of the reasons they picked pink because pink joy stands out in midst of the sorrow, in midst of the darkness. So easily pink stands out to remind us that in times of darkness, distress and despair, there can be joy. With saying that, is there joy in our lives? In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, midst of what 2019 has been and we thought it was going to be as we come to the end, do we have a joy that's buoyancy us up through it all? Through the pain, through the suffering, through the hurt, through the disappointment, a lot of times, I hate to say this, comes with life. If you've never been hurt, disappointed, in pain, in life, please raise your hand. I'd like to see what your secret is. So, when I came, if I started with you guys in Sunday school this morning, and asked you as you came in today, and asked you, how much joy do you have today? How much joy did you have yesterday? Or how much joy to anticipate having tomorrow? What would you have answered? Is there no joy? Or is, there, is it a type of joy that seeing you through whatever you're facing, no matter what? Sure, we might get knocked a bit. But when the ship gets righted, is it joy that rights the ship? Or are we tossed to and fro, lacking joy because of our circumstances and situations? Dependent on them to change, and then we'd be joyful. See, I would propose, quite radically, that as Christians, we should have joy. Because joy arrived that evening that Jesus was born, as was read with the avid reading this morning, for I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Not this those whose circumstances are right. Not this those who happen to be healthy. But for all the people. That joy is what Jesus promised us. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus gives us 17, John 17 verse 13. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And finally Jesus says this joy is ours no matter what. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take our, your joy from you. The Holy Spirit, who is Jesus, is in us. We have his joy today. His joy is the type will see us through. We'll right the ship no matter what. We'll cause us to giggle when we shouldn't 
by your circumstances be giggling. In addition to this Christian joy that sees us through whatever, it's more than just a fact. Because joy something is, I think, biblical joy, Christian joy, is not something we believe in our head as a fact and say, yep, I believe in joy. It's something we experience. It's something that bubbles up from within us because it's emulsion. Sometimes in living a Christian life, we sometimes think that emulsions have nothing to do with it. Really? Are we not creatures of emulsion? Then shouldn't we experience and feel things of the faith and be joyful emotionally over things? Think about it. When you're in love, you love things based on what? Subjects? Facts? No, you sometimes you just love things that the love boils up from you for some things and not other things. Now, I would prepare to say that if you're an Oilers fan, you have a negative emotion this morning over towards an Oilers symbol. That this bubbles up from you from the last four games. And I'm sorry if you're a Flames fan, I have no idea what you feel. Could say something about having a brain scan, but... But when we love someone, when we love something, we can't explain it. It's just a feeling. Likewise, how many of us have phobias? How many of us are fearful? I hate heights. See what they're doing? They're on top of some tower way too high with a selfie stick getting their picture taken. There's no way you catch me up there. And I can't explain why I'm fearful of heights. I've never fallen off anything. But I'm fearful of heights. It just comes out from me. Some of you are fearful of spiders. Some of you are fearful of snakes. Mice. Some of you are fearful of flames. We're just that way for no particular reason. And that if we have Jesus in us, if we have his joy in us, then we should almost have that joy oozing out of us as well. No matter what. Because greater is he in the world than he, him who is in the world. See, Christian's joy is a feeling that Christians just possess or should possess. And like any feelings, they should come upon us because they're in us. They come forth within us because he's in us no matter what. This is why Dr. John Piper, in a July 25th, 2015 article entitled, How Do You Define Joy?, defines joy as Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul, produced by the Holy Spirit, as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word, in the world. Again, good feeling in the soul, because joy is an emotion. It comes forth from the heart. Produced by the Holy Spirit, since if we are a believer... In Christ, we have the Holy Spirit within us. Period. What's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Well, say it. Don't just nod. Joy. Automatically, Christians, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. One of the fruits that the Holy Spirit produces in us is joy. And then the word in the world to this Piper remarks... 
the last piece is that we see the last piece is that we see him in his word and in the world. It is obvious that the most authoritative and clearest place where we see the beauty of Christ is in his word, the Bible. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Christian, if you want to see the beauty of Christ, you need to be in the word. You'll never see the beauty of Christ unless you filter it through the word of God. Because certainly as Piper goes on, you can see Jesus in the world. But you can see a lot of things in the world. That's not Jesus. He goes on. That is why the Holy Spirit inspired the word so that we could read the word and know Christ. The Spirit gives us eyes to see the beauties of Jesus that call joy up out of our hearts. It is not just in the word that we see Christ. We see him in his gifts and his people. We see him in his gifts of nature. We see him in the gift of the food and in all the good things that our Father in heaven gives to us. Every gift of Christ to us is intended to be a communication of something of himself. So we see Christ not only, we taste Christ not only in his word, but also in his works. Now, if we know anything of the Apostle Paul, his writings himself, I don't think we would disagree then that he was a man who tasted and drank of Jesus deeply. Not only in his word, but also Paul experienced Christ in this world. And because Paul had, he experienced joy. Deep down joy that bubbled up from him no matter what. It oozed out of him despite his circumstances. Have you ever knew somebody who ate onions and garlic lots? What happens over time besides they have no friends? <laughs> when I was a young guy, worked at my dad's dairy for a couple of years in a summer job and worked a little bit full-time there, he had a, worked with an older guy from a, a, overseas. For lunch, he'd eat an onion raw. Guess what he smelled like? Even when his mouth was shut. It oozed out of him. See, that's the sort of joy I think that Paul had. It just oozed out of him. Because, again, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, his circumstances and, dic and cir situations didn't dictate that he should have joy. But look at his writings, especially to say the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, again, I say Rejoice. Somebody wrote down this, I saw in a commentary this week, about 326 occurrence of the word joy in the New Testament. Around 131 of them were attributed to being written by the Apostle Paul. 40%. 40%. He wrote about joys. Considering your life for the last week, were you 40% joyful? See, Paul knew joy. Paul taught about joy. Paul experienced joy, Christian joy, deeply. The type of joy, I would argue, that John Piper described. So deeply, it controlled him, literally. 
enabled him to teach, speak about it, but also recognize when other Christians had the same sort of joy. When other Christians enjoyed, experienced deeply Christian joy that allowed them to right their ships no matter what. Allowed them to live life with contentment, with endurance. Because I would argue that going along with joy like that helps us. One such group of Christians that Paul recognized is this church of Thessalonica, who had joy. Again, certainly not because of their circumstances or situations. They were undergoing persecution, <coughs> hardships, affliction. And granted, it wasn't this joy that helped them endure that. It was their faith. It was a result, a byproduct of the faith. They had joy a joy that proceeded out from within them because, again, they tasted deeply Jesus. They saw him and experienced him and his beauty personally. In other words, they had real and vibrant faith. It wasn't a stagnant faith. It was a real faith. In the midst of persecution, midst of affliction, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Wouldn't you, if you just read that verse without seeing the context of it, how many of us would be attracted to a church like that? And when we said, okay, as soon as we say you're going to get persecuted, how many of us would say, I'm out of here? Somebody wrote, I wrote it down this week, says that a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. So there's good that comes out of persecution. Even though I'm dreading the next years in Canada, I'm excited for, for the next years of Canada to be a Christian. We're going to get persecuted. We are being persecuted. Our faith is being tested. Is it going to be proven? See, we need to expect our faith to be tested. We need to our faith to expect our faith to be tried. Because one of the ways God proves whether we're real genuine or not is through trials, through tribulations. Oh, by the way, God doesn't prove our faith for his sake. He already knows if we have faith or not. He proves it for ours. Since when we have true faith, one of the byproducts of that is that we're going to experience deep joy. No matter what. As these Thessalonians had, they enjoyed deep faith that was joy producing. That was given to them, they understood, by the great joy giver, Jesus. Now, true, nowhere in this passage does Paul speak specifically of this church having joy. But I think it's evidence. When you read the passage, how Paul describes this church. That he's excited for what they're going through. He's excited about them. And their happiness. Because he was a pretty straight shooter. If he wasn't, like in the church in Corinth, he would call it what it was. They weren't living out their faith in a dreary sort of way. Have you ever met a Christian like this? Are you a Christian like that? By the way, that's ER. Oh, good. 
Oh, I guess we gotta go to church. Listen to the pastor again. Go to the Christmas supper again tonight. Be with those people. One of our greatest evangelistic tool in North America today is to be joyful. But not joyful based on outward circumstances, but allowing Jesus to shine through. And stop being yours. The Thessalonian church wasn't pessimistic. Paul wasn't writing dreary about their faith or about what could transpire in their midst. But they had a joy that brought them up to the surface all the time. Which is moving on to verse 5, Paul implies that having that sort of joyful buoyancy in your faith that comes from the inside out no matter what is evidence of a true believer. Verse 5. This evidence of the righteousness of judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And granted, direct thrust from verse 5 is not anything about joy per se, but it's about the righteous judgment of God. That when it comes, that only the true believer, the ones who know Christ and Christ knows them, would be the, will be the ones declared righteous. Will be the ones declared worthy of God's kingdom. Now worthy, not because of their trials, not because of their affliction, not because of their persecution, not because they suffered, because no Christian is declared worthy for heaven because we suffer, because we have trials, because we have tribulations. Why are we considered worthy? Because this child whose sacrificial lamb died for us. And because he died, we live. See, we're worthy by God's grace alone. Grace that these in the Thessalonian church received by the free gift of faith in Jesus Christ. And because they received Jesus, they had gained entrance in eternity. And that is guaranteed. Now, as this Thessalonian church shows us, just because they have received grace, just because they would be declared worthy, it doesn't mean that they weren't going to experience any suffering. It wasn't going to mean that they weren't going to experience any tribulation, any hardship, any affliction. Just like, I hope we haven't bought into the falseness that for a Christian, everything is roses. Some of you experience that firsthand, unfortunately, in horrible and ugly ways. But how do we respond? It doesn't give us the right either to be miserable. It doesn't mean that we don't feel it. Like I said, we get rocked around, but does joy right our ships? Because how we respond does somewhat show how we are worthy for the kingdom. That who is our ultimate treasure? That who is inside of us? It demonstrates to others and ourselves more that we are indeed his children. 
was saying this, the truth is that for believer, in the midst of trials, suffering, affliction, persecution, to have this joy of Jesus that's already within us, that comes forth from us, no matter what, when life is good and when life is hard, doesn't depend on our circumstances and situations, it's not fun at times. You know what? It'd be a lot more easier living as a non-believer, would it not? No rules. Live today, drink today, die tomorrow. Nobody's going to say amen. Because how many of us have thought that? That sometimes we get this tendency, especially when we get persecuted, especially when we're getting afflicted, especially when living the Christian life gets hard, we take a peek on the other side of the fence. And what do we see? The grass looks greener over there. Or you farmers, the crops look better over there. Especially when we see the non-believers seem like they're enjoying life more. That they're being more joyful. That they seem like they're being blessed more. They're not being persecuted. They're not being afflicted. We might as well just say yes to same-sex marriages. We might as well say yes to the government when they say we can't talk a homosexual about maybe he shouldn't be one. Because they look like they're having fun. They're prosperous. They're getting all the good jobs. They have more joy. What's the point of living the Christian life if all we're going to do is get hardship after hardship after hardship? Let's face it, we all fall into thinking sometimes. But if we do, we've got to be careful. We need to truly understand that on the other side of the fence, there is no lasting joy. Verse 6 to 10, Paul tells us that. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. There's no lasting joy over there because there's going to be judgment. Judgment when Jesus returns, as promised. We celebrate that God is a promise-keeping God at Advent because he promised us Messiah, the Messiah came. He promises that the king will return, so there will be judgment. Judgment to correct all the wrongs, judgment to make rights right again and wrong wrong again. But judgment also for those who do not know Jesus. Have not believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why one of the points that there's only one way to God, and that's through his son. For them, there will be no joy. Really. Rather sadly... Those who do not know Jesus come to judgment will suffer the vengeance of God. 
let's face it, in 2019 to our so-called modern ears, that sounds harsh. Vengeance. Now, don't confuse vengeance with revenge. Revenge is something we all like to practice. Just think when you're a kid, maybe when you're an adult, somebody threw you an ice ball and hit you right in the back of the head. And they went, <laughs> what's your first reaction? I'm going to get a pound of flesh out of you. See, God is not revengeful on sinners. That's something that's we often throw at God. But he's not, venge- he's not revengeful on sinners. On the contrary, he sent his do- son to die for them. How can that be revengeful? That Jesus sent his only son to die for sinners, knowing that mon- many of them probably will never say yes to Jesus. See, church, sometimes I think we're more vengeful on sinners than God is. Revengeful on sinners. He sent his son to die for them and continue to please by the Holy Spirit in the world, pleading with their hearts to return to him. That is not a God of revenge. It's a God of mercy. It's a God of grace. It's a God of love. But he's also a holy God. If sinners still insist, they prefer to do not know God and refuse to obey the gospel, as verse 8 says, then God has no choice but to judge them. To have vengeance upon him based on his standard. Because if God did not judge sinners, then he wouldn't be holy. And if God's not holy, he's not God. Because it's not perfect. So God's living true to his character in pronouncing judgment. And he'll judge both the sinner and the saint, the sinner to eternal punishment, the saint to eternal joy. Meaning joy, yes, then, but also today. Every day. Again, because he's with us. So even though the grass may look greener on the other side of the fence, even though it looks like they're having more fun on the other side, that we could get joy there, but when we cross the fence, it's not going to be lasting. Just like, really, we rob ourselves of joy every time we cross the fence, so to speak. When we don't make a wise choice. You know, we need to hang on for God's blessing. Warren Worsby passed away this year, but I ran across an illustration. I thought it would be good because it's about two farmers. One's a believer and one's an atheist. And when harvest season came, the atheistic farmer taunted his believing neighbor because apparently God had not blessed the believing neighbor too much. Yet the atheist family was not, had not been sick. His fields were rich with harvest. And he was going to make lots of money. And the atheist said to his Christian neighbor, I thought you said it paid to believe in God and be a Christian. It does, said the Christian farmer. 
But God doesn't always pay his people in September. See, we are wired ourselves to be instantly gratified. But sometimes joy does come in the morning. A lot of times joy comes in the morning. The greenest of grass is with Jesus because he's the joy giver. Not the multitude of other things the world tells us that we perhaps even think that will make us happy, make us joyful. Money, beauty, popularity, power, image, having green implements in the yard rather than red or vice versa. Being Baptist. All that is temporary pleasures. Of course, the Baptist part, if you're a true believer, you're just a believer, you're not a Baptist, but you have to be a Baptist believer, that's going to get you joyful parts in heaven as well. God's going to put us in front of the Pentecostals, you know that, right? <laughs> oh, would they get their hands down? See, unfortunately in our culture, both inside and outside the church, We too often define our happiness, our joy, on the rolling tides of circumstances and situations. It really reveals how fragile we are. And don't hear me wrong, again, I'm not saying we shouldn't feel anything when we lose our jobs. Or our crops are still in the field and it's December. Or our kids aren't walking with the Lord. But if we base our joy strictly on material sort of things, and when they work out good, we're happy, and when they don't, we're unhappy, that's no way to live life. Paul concludes this passage. Again, I don't think we can have any doubt that he wanted this Thessalonian church to continue to be joyful and happy as they have been, that he's rolled about. Joyful when they're with enduring joy that would see them through as has saw them through. That comes from within and works its way outward. The Holy Spirit gives them. Which is why I think he ends this passage with a prayer. Verse 11. To this end we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you and him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. I would suggest from this prayer four things that we can glean on this Sunday of Advent of joy. To be more joyful. Any of you lacking joy by the way? Well pastor it's almost noon hour. You better hurry up or I will be lacking joy. Well, it won't be very long. It's not a formula. But it's consistency. If we do this, we will start seeing more joy, I believe. Consistently over time. First off, if we want joy, then we need to constantly pray, the first part of verse 11, that God would make us worthy of his calling. Calling, of course, being the larger sense. Mechanic, farmer, pastor, plumber, retired but also calling in the smaller 
things as well. In the sense of living our lives daily for him, making choices that honor him to the standard that he has set for us, yes, we will fail because we're not perfect, but we're striving in the right direction. Such as, not tell that little white lie in order to get ourselves out of trouble. How fast were you going, sir? Well, I was just going over a little bit over the speed limit, officer. Or, honey, does this look good on me? Or to maybe not fudge our numbers when it comes tax time. Take that little cash, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Those are callings. Or maybe, this one's not just men, but men and women, when we're on the internet late at night, not clicking on that site we know we shouldn't be on. See, if we're praying that God will give us the ability to make our lives worthy of the calling which he has called us, and then go and believe that prayer and act like he's going to give us the power to say, I'm going to pay what is Caesar's, Caesar's. What do you think is going to happen? How we live our lives will be more in line with who's inside of us. One of the byproducts of that then has to be joy. We don't have to worry about when we tell that little white lie, is it going to come back? Or if we tell that little white lie, what are we going to do next time? Tell a bigger lie and a bigger lie and a bigger lie? Second thing is that we need to pray the last part of verse 11 and believe that God can cause ultimate good out of every circumstances in every situation. Situations and circumstances appear so negative and so non-hopeful. Ones that so easily turn us sour. And it's not big things. Like I'm still mad about a little pen holder they stole from my office that had a Canadian Centennial dollar bill. I bought that for my dad at the Ontario place. When my dad died, my mom said, take this, I'll help you remember your dad. They took it. Things like that turns me sour. Let alone big things. But if I believe God is sovereign, if you believe God is sovereign, what does that mean? He's all powerful. He's all great. He can do whatever he wants. Then can he not turn what's negative around to be good? See, the thing is, we believe that in our heads, but we don't believe that in our hearts. Because we see situations, and I'm the first one to stand in line, I say, there's no joy here. The trouble is, we live in a world that there's going to be a lot of things that happen. If we think God is powerless to change what's horrible into something good, we'll have no joy. Worse off is what happens. We become stuck. And when we become stuck, you know what happens usually? At least with David, self-pity. Woe is me. Or the would have, could have, should have regrets. Or the guilt or the anger. So many things that rob us of joy. Or the blame game. None of you playing that, right? 
3, to release joy that is within us, first part of verse 12, we need to pray and choose to glorify God in all that we do. And, and in all that we experience, that God would be glorified no matter what. Paul says in the church of Corinth, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. What part all excludes anything? Now, how does that produce joy? Choosing to glorify God. Well, I would argue that we're, we're created to glorify God, so when we choose to glorify God, we're going to be filling out our purposes. And what thing or person, when they're fulfilling out their purpose, is not joyful? So I would argue that a lot of times they're not joyful is because we choose to glorify ourselves rather than God. And then we can't live up to the standard we set for ourselves. And finally, from the last part of verse 12, we need to pray and live in his sufficient grace. Not our own abilities, not our own strengths or weaknesses, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't use those, but we need to get the engine of the train in the right place, grace. Because guess what? One of the chief reasons we're not joyful is we come to the end of ourselves and instead of choosing God, we think that we can still figure it out. But many of us know who are growing older, like when I came up to the music stand, Richard and Marilyn must have the opposite problem I do because it was way too close for my eyes to read. You guys must need it further or whatever. I need it further down. My arms are going to get long enough one day, maybe. But we are weak people. We need to live in grace more and more. And his grace is assured, right? From God through Jesus Christ. And when we embrace grace, we experience joy. Do we not? What's the definition of grace? Unmerited favor. Right? In 15, 10 days, some of us will be given a gift. You're going to open up and say, Oh, it's what I wanted. No, we're going to go, I got it, I got it. And not just kids, you come on, older people, you're going to get things that you're going to jump around about, at least inside. In Forsberg, they sang a song, because somewhere along the line, in eight years, I mentioned that this song was very big in my being recalled by God to ministry. They sang it this morning. And they said, this is your Christmas present, Pastor Dave. I was joyful. Because I received grace, an unmerited favor. Paul says in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. We receive grace because of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, and Jesus is the Holy Spirit, and therefore we can abound in hope. So as we go on this third day of Advent, Remember, if you want that joy that's going to be able to right the ship no matter what, pray. Receive the grace that he offers us in Jesus Christ. Choose to glorify him. Choose to be and pray that you live worthy to the calling in which he has called us to. 
and really believe that no matter how ugly the situation, no matter how dark the night is, that joy does come in the morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we sing to him, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. But Lord God, as we leave, may we live as if joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Because you are the most joyful person that we can ever experience. Let us experience you more deeply, Jesus, this Advent season and this Christmas time. We pray this in his name. Amen.